Welcome to the Master of None podcast, adventures in a hands-on life. Build. Grow. Cook. Train. Explore. This is an extra fun episode of the Master of None podcast, and that's because I am recording with a bottle of wine, a couple glasses, a plate of a variety of cheese, and my wife, Courtney Gordon, is joining us on today's podcast. Hello, everybody. Okay. And the reason that we have a bottle of wine and a plate of cheese is because on the episode of the podcast today, we're going to be discussing the design and hopefully initial construction ideas for our wine cellar, also cheese cave, also root cellar, also uh, canned goods storage. So Courtney, if you would tell me a little bit about when we were designing the house and working the um, the wine cellar into the design of the house, just your thoughts about it. Um, ready, go. All right. Well, let me back up a couple of years. So we designed this house with a lot of different things in mind. One of the things we wanted to incorporate was a wine cellar, but we also wanted to have a cold storage place, a root cellar. We're eventually going to be having a garden here too. So we wanted to design a place where the ambient temperature would be lower than we keep our house. Most people keep their house at 68 degrees, maybe 72 if you're in Houston, like we were for so many years, maybe a little bit higher, saves on some AC bills. So we designed our house with a basement. Currently, the basement is unfinished, so it's kind of a blank slate. But there's other parts to a basement besides just looking around and seeing the cement floor and seeing the cement around the different sides of the basement. So before we poured everything in the basement, um, we wanted to insulate it. We live in a cold climate, so it's really, it can get pretty bitter cold up here. Um, so we wanted to make sure that whatever we, however we heated the house, we wanted to make sure that the um, heat didn't just go through the cement walls straight into the ground and heat up the ground around our house. So we put insulation panels on the outside of our, our house all around the basement. These are two inch thick sheets um, and we put them outside the cement walls and then we kind of backfilled around them. So we did this on most of the basement. And then we also have in insulation underneath the cement floor. So for somebody who's not familiar with how this works, when you when you build a house and you have foundation walls that go down into the ground, uh, that can also be what creates your basement walls. So uh, these foundation walls go straight down into the ground. And if you dig out the dirt inside those walls, that that's actually what creates a basement. So, uh, so we took the foam insulation and put it outside those concrete walls so that there's actually like really heavy insulation 
between the basement space and the dirt that's outside. We also did something very similar for the basement slab. That's the floor of the basement. So we have our floor of the basement and underneath it, before we poured it, we put um, insulation under that as well. And we also added something we call radiant heat. So we took pipes, um, specifically PEX pipes, and we took these pipes and we kind of wrapped them through the slab of the, the floor. So you put insulation down, you put these pipes wrapping through where the floor is going to be, and then you pour concrete on top of them. So we have this floor that is heated um, and that then heats our entire basement. Now, if we wanted to have a wine cellar or root storage area, we want to make sure that that is not the same temperature as we keep the rest of the house. And just so people understand, the way that that heats the floor is by pumping hot water through the tubes. So that that ends up heating up that whole concrete slab, that whole basement floor uh, gets heated up, except as Courtney was saying, the one... Uh, 12 foot by 16 foot corner of the basement where we don't have the tubes. That's exactly where I was getting at. Um, so this corner that does not have the tubes in it is then our wine cellar. Now, the other part that we also also did for this corner is we have insulation on most of the outside of the basement except this corner that's 16 by 12 feet. So we have this corner of the basement um, that is completely in the ground um, without any insulation. The reason that's really nice and really important is because the ground, especially here, is a different temperature, a lower temperature than what we want to keep our house at. So if we're trying to get a root cellar, we're trying to get a wine cellar, we want to have a lower temperature in order for it to be be able to preserve food and wine and everything else. Yes. Like if you've ever been in a cave and you walk into a cave in the summertime, it feels really cool. And you walk into a cave in the wintertime, it actually feels warm. And that's because the entire cave takes on the temperature of the of the soil of the deep soil around the cave of of the underground temperature now the underground temperature in any in any given area in any given climate basically ends up being the average temperature that that place has been for the last thousand years, 2000 years, a long time. So our soil temperature here is actually, what is it like 44 degrees? It's something ridiculously low. If you, if you dig down deep enough, like once you hit like four or five feet down deep enough that the soil temperature is actually stable and it's not affected by the seasonal swings in temperature, warmer in the, warmer in the summer, cooler in the winter, that soil temperature is actually about 44 degrees, which tells you that over the last 1,000, 2,000 years, however long, our average temperature here, so daytime, nighttime, summer, winter, just the total dead average temperature is 44 degrees. So a cave here, if you could find a cave and you went down into that cave, would actually be about 44 degrees. Now, what we're saying with with using 
the soil temperature to create a wine cellar or root cellar or something like that is uh, the ideal temperature theoretically for a wine cellar, uh, basically for the long-term storage of wine, is supposedly about 55 degrees. Now keep in mind we have that 44 degree temperature on kind of three sides, three of the six sides of the room, and the ambient temperature of our house, somewhere around 70 degrees, on the other three sides. Now we can we can play around with some insulation and stuff, but theoretically we should be able to construct a room in that corner that's really going to cool off because we're not adding any heat to it. It's just kind of exposed to that 44 degree temp, uh, temperature of the soil. So theoretically we should be able to construct a room that hopefully will get down around that that 55 degree point. All we have to do is insulate it from the rest of our house. <laughs> right, you and make then, it sound so easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This brie is really good, by the way. It is very good. We got some uh, brie from a local, what, grocery, organic kind of... Food co-op? Food co-op, that's what they're called. Yep. Delicious. So, um, how about if... I will go get the rest of the bottle of wine that we started pouring. We're drinking a red blend of some sort, by the way. Um, and I'll go get that and I will pour us new glasses and you can talk to our guests. No, not guests. Our listeners about some of the fun ideas for what do you want in a wine cellar? Like we get to build a wine cellar. That's pretty cool. Um, so fun ideas for the wine cellar itself, um, as far as the actual design goes, fun ideas that you've had. And also like the basement finishing project in general. What does it mean to have an unfinished basement? Um, why do we have an unfinished basement right now? The plans, the layout, all of that. So I will be back. All right. Well, while Isaac is off getting refills, I have a job to do. So wine cellars, who has a wine cellar in their house? This is so fun. So basically, when we designed the house, we basically said, what would be the most amazing thing to have in a house? And we put it in. We put in a library. We put in... Well, we're going to put in a wine cellar. We have a walk-in shower. We have all these cool things. We even have a bridge that, well, we call it the pirate bridge. It's super cool. Um, Isaac did talk about it on the first episode. So go go to the website. I'm sure there's some pictures of the pirate bridge um, on that episode if you want to take a look at this cool pirate bridge. Anyway, we're talking about wine cellars. I'm getting distracted. So now keep in mind, most of that just happens because we're building it ourselves. Well, that that is true. We get to build, you build it, our, it yourself. You get to do whatever you want. That That's exactly it. And that's why it was so much fun because we got to just put in whatever we wanted. So I mentioned earlier that there's like a 
finished basement and an unfinished basement. And unfinished basement means you walk down the stairs of the basement and you look around and there's just cement. Cement walls, cement floor. Think of it as an area the size of the footprint of your house. So how big your house is underneath the ground, just there as a blank slate. So we designed some things that we want to put into it and put in our, our windows that we have in the basement and the plumbing and whatnot based on those designs, but we can also change them around. So the wine cellar designs that we were thinking of in this 12 foot by 16 foot area in this corner of the basement. So we want to have obviously some wine in there. We want to we really think it'd be cool to have a hangout place in there. Now it's going to be cold. It's going to be a cool hangout place, literally. So you're going to have to wear coats, but it'd be really fun to be able to have um, a wine barrel table with some stools around it. But we also have to think about the functionality of it. What do we want to keep in there? Well, root cellar stuff. Once we have a garden, Hopefully we'll be able to keep some winter squashes in there and then also have canned goods in there to just help preserve the canned goods for a little bit longer. I guess I shouldn't say canned goods. We're really talking like, yes, canned goods, but like home canned goods from the garden in glass mason jars, not not just like stacks of canned tuna or beans or something like that. Those, Those can just go in the pantry or anywhere. We're talking like canned stuff from the garden. Also, we have our cheese tray here. The wine cellar is going to double as a cheese cave for aging cheeses. Because as we talked about in a couple of our cheese making episodes, cheese is usually aged or traditionally aged in a cave. For those same reasons, because we talked about the cooler temperature of the cave, um, so for those same reasons, caves were really conducive to aging cheeses or even storing cheeses. And then we kind of unintentionally discovered that aged cheese had its own value. I think um, I think maybe in at least one of the cheese making episodes, I mentioned the part from uh, Homer's Odyssey where Odysseus and his crew go into the cave of the uh, Cyclops and they note how well stocked it is in wine and cheese and such. So we know that at least back to the time of Homer, uh, people have been storing wine and cheese in caves. There was actually an archaeological dig um, that showed that there may actually be a cave that's from about 3700 BC that had multiple bottles of wine in it and room for multiple bottles of wine, which is really fascinating to think that almost 6,000 years ago, people were making wine and storing it in caves. I did some research and it actually looks like in China at 7,000 BC, they had an alcoholic drink that was very similar to wine. That's a really long time ago. (laughs) So obviously part of the design of a wine cellar needs to 
be conducive to storing wine. So we already mentioned the ideal temperature being around 55 degrees, which is probably what we'll end up with. And um, after we actually get this built and test it out, we will follow up on that, just like a lot of the stuff on the podcast that we kind of get a start on on one episode. And then later on, we're going to have to follow up on it after a year or however long. Um, other, some other aspects of storing wine, it should really be stored in the dark. So having a closed room where you can store it is actually better than like keeping it, say, somewhere in the kitchen where the sun sets every evening and shines in through the kitchen window and it's really bright shining on the bottles. That's not ideal storage conditions for wine. Um, also somewhat humid, but, um, lower humidity is a better problem to have than your humidity being too high. Uh, because, you can uh, and you can and actually should store wines on their side uh, for a couple of reasons. One being the wine itself will keep the cork hydrated, which is a big part of the reason for storing wines in a more humid environment. Um, so you store them on their side, the wine itself will keep that cork hydrated so it doesn't dry out and crumble and all of that. Um, if your wine cellar is too humid, that cork can actually start to mold, which is no good at all. Uh, the other reason to store wines on their side is actually because as the um, yeast and any live cultures and byproducts of those live yeast cultures that are still active in the wine and any other um, not quite dissolved particulates that are in the wine... Over time, those can uh, tend to settle out. And if the wine's stored vertically, they'll just settle into the bottom of the bottle. And once they're in the bottom of the bottle, there's not much you can do about it. However, if you store the wine on its side, um, you can periodically rotate all of your wine bottles a quarter turn, and it'll keep you from getting any any sediment in the wine. It'll keep all of those compounds kind of mixed up in the wine like they're supposed to be. So um, that's actually why if you look at most wine storage racks, they, uh, they're they set up so that the wine bottles are actually laying on their sides. So those are really the biggest factors with uh, how to store wine properly. And um, you might also see that you're supposed to keep it away from excessive noise or vibration. So I guess unless you live over a railroad track in Chicago, that's probably not that big of a deal. Um, so yeah, um, quiet, dark, moderate humidity, 55 degrees. And, and the temperature thing, I don't remember if we mentioned this already, but the temperature thing really anywhere from about 45 to about 65 degrees is okay. And for our um, metric system users, that's between about 7 and 18 degrees Celsius, uh, with 13 degrees being ideal for wine storage. And that ends up being about ideal for storing um, the canned goods, the uh, long-term garden vegetables, 
uh, the winter squashes and apples and stuff like that. About 55 degrees with moderate humidity in the dark is, it turns out, is ideal for storing all of that other stuff too. So um, hopefully that works out and we will see. Uh, yes. So I have a question. <laughs> I literally question. just raised my hand because I didn't want to interrupt. So my question is, you mentioned it being dark, which makes sense. You don't want to have a whole bunch of light shining in on your bottles. But is there something that specifically happens when light shines in on the bottles that does actually destroy the progress of uh, making the wine or after the wine's already made and bottled? Does it does it have an impact on the wine itself? Yes. And I don't know all of the scientific details. excuse me, all of the scientific details. However, I do know this is one of the biggest reasons why um, most most beers and at least most red wines are bottled in dark colored glass is actually to block the uh, light from getting through the bottle into the beer or wine. Um, I know that it has something to do with the UV rays degrading something or the other, but I really don't know all of the scientific details. So just like UV rays degrade your skin and increase your risk of cancer, so do UV (laughs) rays. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Hmm. Fun fact. (laughs) The term top shelf actually refers to wine storage. That's where that term comes from. Really? Yes. (laughs) Because um, generally in in a wine cave or wine cellar or even in a wine shop, the, um, the more expensive wines would be stored on the top shelf and the less expensive wines would be stored on the bottom shelf and everything in between. That's kind of how they were sorted. So, so the term top shelf referring to something that's of higher quality or higher price. Um, yeah, that's where that came from. Fascinating. We also have some Parmesan cheese, which is one of my personal favorites and one that we will definitely be making shortly and eventually storing in the wine cellar cheese cave to age. Do we have stuff for Parmesan cheese yet, or is it just Havarti? I give it the thumbs up. The mm-hmm. thumbs up. It will happen soon. Okay. So we've gone over a bunch of the science and physics and stuff involved in a wine cellar. So now we're going to talk about some of our design ideas for exactly how we're going to pull this off. And the really fun part about this is that you, the listeners to the Master of None podcast, can always write in and comment, especially if it's something that we disagree on. Then you can tell me how right I am and uh, how how we should do it my way. Or Courtney's giving me... Uh, I think we should pause here. <laughs> what or you is can going write in on? And tell me how right she is uh-huh. about um, an opinion. You so. should do that. <laughs> So I think I think we're both agreed that we're going to go for like kind of a rustic design. 
Yes, very much so. If you've seen pictures of our house, I think you would agree <laughs> that we probably agree on that. However, um, I do most of the canning that goes on in our house. That is true. And Courtney wants to hide my canning jars um, so that when you walk into the wine cellar, you actually don't <laughs> hey. you don't see them. <laughs> hey, right? so she she actually wants two separate rooms so that she can have all of her pretty little wine bottles, and no one has to see my my canned peaches and blackberries and um, pumpkin pie filling. And pickles and peppers and salsa. Like I really I really think that my canned stuff is is pretty. It's all lined up in little glass jars and it's different colors. But Courtney doesn't think that anybody wants to see that when they walk into a wine cellar. So go ahead. Write in with your email That is opinion. not at all. <laughs> That is not at all what I was referring to. All right, Master of None community. I have a hard time picturing things sometimes of like what it's going to look like at the end. So what do I do? I go to Pinterest. Everybody goes to Pinterest. So I go to Pinterest and most of the pantry ideas are like these like haphazard shelves that aren't finished and so I have this idea that that's what it's going to look like thinking about it probably isn't going to look like that but I did say on a couple occasions that it would be kind of nice to walk into the wine cellar and have wine everywhere on their sides and this wine barrel with like a glass top and countertop stools around it with like this antler in the middle. You can hold a bottle of wine in the middle of the table as a centerpiece. And I may have not been able to visualize and I'm maybe still have trouble visualizing having a whole bunch of canned stuff haphazardly spaced around everywhere. Now, if anybody has nice-looking pantries, please let me see them so I can visualize them. Yes. Yes, please do. Also, speaking of Pinterest, Courtney manages my Pinterest page. So if any of you go on my Pinterest page... Whatever you see or don't see on there is... <laughs> this is a new thing. <laughs> it's not that new. Um, completely Courtney's responsibility to manage oh. <laughs> my Pinterest page. Maybe I should just link your Pinterest page with my Pinterest page and then maybe we'd all be happy. It's <laughs> a good idea. Can you do that? Is that... I, I don't... I have no idea. Computers are definitely not my strong suit. So, um, ceiling the ceiling of the wine cellar. Um, we're unsure what we're doing for the ceiling. So being a basement and being a finished basement, in the ceiling of your basement, you tend to have all of your mechanical stuff. You have a lot of wiring and plumbing and stuff like that that maybe you want access to later on. So... 
one option for that is to do some sort of drywall ceiling and actually cover it up, which we do on in in all fairness, we do that on the main floor of our house, like the ceiling of our main floor, all of the walls of our main floor. <clears throat> excuse me. And the loft and all of the walls of the loft, everything is drywalled, so that's covered up in there. There's stuff going through those walls too. Um, so I don't know, like we don't have that much more running through the basement ceiling. So do we really need to cover it up? On the other hand, in all fairness, I had a bit of an anxiety attack when we started putting drywall in this the is house. True. Um, as a, as a naval architect on a ship, you have these framed walls, uh, just like you do in a house. You are beside yourself. And you have uh, wiring and plumbing and stuff running through those framed walls, just like you do in a house. But on a ship, you only put paneling on one side of the framed wall, not on both sides, so that you always have access to all of your wires, all of your plumbing, all of that stuff. I'm going to yes. interrupt. Could you imagine walking into a house... With only one side of the wall having drywall on it. I'm just saying. I don't think I've ever walked into a house and ever seen that. So it took a while, but Isaac did agree that we should drywall both sides. One other option was actually to make all of the walls in the house like two feet thick um, so that you could have outside drywalled outside drywalled and then have like a little a little tunnel that you could walk through and still have access to all of your wires plumbing mechanical stuff data cables all of that that so was another can, option so you can take the marine architectural engineer out of the water but you can never take the architect you can't take the salt you, out of the <laughs> You're a complete goofball. By the way, a couple weeks ago, one of my kids, one of our kids, asked me a question. I don't remember what the question was precisely, but it started with, Dad, back when you were a pirate... <laughs> I, I remember that. That's right. Okay. That that made my day. <laughs> Okay, so ceiling. Um, they make these things called, what are they called? Drop ceilings? Yes. Where basically they're removable panels. Any of you who ever went to high school probably had some sort of drop ceiling in your high school. Yes. <laughs> yes, the answer is absolutely. Every single high school, yes. So, right panels that could actually be easily popped out and then that gives you access to everything above the panels so being in the basement i'm a little more comfortable since like we have so much stuff running through that ceiling doing some sort of drop ceiling uh we're talking about kind of the basement in general kind of the wine cellar also well the more issues you have with different things in your house the more likely you want to have access to it Mm-hmm. Most people don't have issues with anything. However, that's not true. Well, okay, all right. So most a lot people of, have all sorts of house issues all the time. Okay, fair. So wherever you have issues, doesn't change what I'm going to say. But whatever you have issues, um, 
Plumbing is one of the things that you really are most concerned about having issues with. So if you have a leak somewhere, you want to have access to the plumbing. Um, and above where we designed this wine wine cellar in this corner of the basement is actually our master bath. So we have a lot of plumbing and drains running through that area along and that area is also where our furnace exhaust is as well. So if we want to have access to our <coughs> furnace exhaust, if we want to, well, I can't think of a reason why, but you don't think of a reason why until, until you, you need it, it. Yeah, until you cover it up and then you need it. So this area, even though drywall looks nicer for sanity of my husband, and if anything goes wrong, hmm, when something goes wrong, it's a lot easier to replace a panel or two than it is to rip out a whole bunch of drywall and put it back up again. Yes, even though drywall is cheap. But if we did drywall, I am half tempted to do a podcast episode on painting a traditional fresco on the ceiling. That would be awesome. <laughs> In fact, have a friend um, who I didn't talk to before this podcast about possibly plugging her on the podcast, so I won't mention her name on the podcast, but we do have a friend who lives down in Colorado who is actually a professional traditional fresco painter. She totally specializes <laughs> in that. That's right. That'd be super fun. Speaking of what's above... The wine cellar. Um, Are you talking about the fireman's pole that we were pretend we were we were discussing putting like a hole in the floor and a fireman's pole down so we could. Uh, the pole wasn't necessarily part of my plans, but hmm. if you really want a pole, I'm sure we could accommodate. You're being a complete <laughs> goofball. My idea had less to do with the pole. <laughs> And more to do with putting a trap door from the master closet down into the wine cellar because the master closets are right above the wine cellar. So That's what he, I was saying. A fireman's pole, you, you, you'd like slide down it. You're, you're such a boy. Here's the move. So you tell your kids, oh, we're going to bed, right? You go in your bedroom, close the door. Everything gets all quiet. You, meanwhile, have snuck back in through the master bath into the closet, open the secret hatch <laughs> trapdoor, and like climb down effects. a ladder <laughs> into the wine cellar. Or and, fireman's pole. And then you get to hang out in the wine cellar while your kids think that you're sleeping. That does sound fun. It's a sign of being a true parent when you're sneaking out and, and your kids don't know about it. <laughs> so one of the fun things about having a totally unfinished basement and yet having a house that's totally livable is that everything that we build into the basement can just be extra fun stuff. So um, we opened one bottle of wine tonight and it's time to pour a little more into our glasses so i'm going to turn you over to courtney and she's going to talk about some of the other individual 
rooms that we are considering or have planned for the finishing of the basement. All right. Here we go. So we kind of mentioned this earlier, but building your own house, you can kind of choose whatever you want to put into it. So we have this basement. It's completely unfinished. It's literally cement everywhere. Well, we have a mechanical room, so all the pipes for the radiant heat go in there. And as we kind of mentioned before, radiant heat, you have these PEX pipes that are wrapped around um, underneath the floor everywhere, and you pump hot water into it, and the hot water then heats up your house that way. It's a little bit more efficient because uh, you heat the actual surface of the floor instead of just forced air. Air, well, it just kind of dissipates, but the actual substance of the floor, once you heat it, it can actually stay hot longer. Um, so when a breeze comes through, yeah, from the mass, you're right. So when the breeze comes through, you open a door, you come inside, it takes a lot less energy to heat from the floor than it does forced air system. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. So they have... We have in our mechanical room um, a place where all of that kind of gets pumped around and a furnace for that. We have um, other areas of the basement as well. We have a Isaac keeps saying boiler because I called it a, a furnace, I think. So technically it's a boiler. Other areas of the basement, we have a TV room. On the main floor of the house, we do not have a TV. Um, I think we have one, well, we do have one in our room, and we have one upstairs for the kids to watch, but eventually that TV is going to go in the basement. Uh, so we have this area set aside for that. We have an area for like a wet bar and a pool table with some high top tables. And we have a walkout basement which is super awesome because it faces west and west is our fun mountain view anyway other areas of the basement we have a gym so when i say we have a gym we don't actually have a gym we have cement walls that eventually are going to become a gym and then we have two other guest rooms that we're going to use What's One wrong of them, with cement walls in a gym? Nothing's wrong with it's cement like, walls um, in a gym, but we... Rocky Four, like... What's his name? Uh, Ivan Drago. <laughs> so you have some kettlebells and he a was, yoga like, mat. Is that is that considered your your gym? <laughs> yes. Okay. The, so the we kettlebells have... Kettlebells and the mat and the concrete walls. Well, there you go. So we apparently have a gym. We still have two guest rooms that are going to eventually be made. And then another room in the basement where kind of throwing around the idea of having a koi pond in there. Now, for those of you who don't know what koi are, they're actually domesticated carp. So we're going to have some of those. From Japan. From Japan. Fancy colors. They're You can go ahead and explain what what koi are. I'm sure most of you have probably seen a pond that has like the giant goldfish is what most people 
refer to them as, but they're koi, usually all sorts of pretty colors. I'm sure we will do some more podcasts on koi because we have some plans for um, for some koi raising and koi ponds. And it's absolutely fascinating, like tons of history over hundreds of years about how these um, carp were domesticated into decorative koi and uh, the different varieties of koi and the color patterns on them. And even even how the individual color patterns relate to these different aspects of Japanese culture and stuff. And they're emperors, right? Yes. Yeah, actually, like the first, um, I think the first three uh, v- identified varieties of koi were named after the emperor of the time um, because these, basically people who were uh, rice farmers who had these rice patties, we're getting way off topic now, but that's fine. Um, are these rice patties, and they would raise carp along with ducks, along with rice, because you don't want to have a monoculture. So you have like this system where these different animals and plants are feeding off of each other. It's a very efficient way to raise rice and protein with the ducks and the carp. Anyway, they eventually noticed certain colors of carp not just the normal like kind of brown gold color, but maybe you had one that was a little more red or maybe you had one that came out white. And they would actually take these special carp and um, take them from uh, from their rice paddies back to their back to ponds near their homes where they could keep them. And uh, we call them koi, but uh, actually the Japanese word goi is just the word for carp. And... Uh, Nishikigoi is the word for colored carp. So uh, the Japanese Nishikigoi is actually what they are. And we just call them koi in English. Anyway, so you end up with these these fish that are these different colors. And then they end up breeding them together. And you might end up with one that's all white and one that's a brighter red color. And then they breed those together. So the first recognized variety of koi and you're kind of putting me on the spot here, is called the uh, Kohaku. And those are the ones that you see that are just kind of the mottled white and red pattern. And the the emperor of the time was Emperor Kohaku. And so these were given as a gift to the emperor and to have in his garden ponds, um, at the imperial palace or whatever. And um, in turn, these uh, farmers who had put all of this effort into raising and developing these beautiful fish were rewarded with maybe land, maybe um, maybe money, who knows what. So, uh, so that was the first variety. And then, um, and I'm probably getting some of this history wrong, um, and then they bred those with a white and black kind of blotchy mottled koi. So when those were bred together, what they made was uh, something that looked kind of like the kohaku, but it also had some black splotches on it. And uh, those ended up being called sanke because they were presented to Emperor Sanke. And again, disclaimer, I might be getting some of this history wrong. I apologize. But this is really cool stuff that I'm 
totally fascinated by. So, um, the next one, uh, the ne- the third recognized variety of koi is uh, they took these same kohaku and they bred them with an all black carp. So uh, a koi that was actually exhibiting a condition known as melanism were an animal. It's like the opposite of uh, albinism, right? Um, so the koi comes out all black, like totally jet black. And they interbred that with, uh, with the Kohaku. And it ended up with a pattern that had more black on it. And you could get into the details of how the, uh, this next variety is actually a black fish. Um, if you kind of dissect its, uh, its anatomy, it's actually a black fish that has white and red patterns on top of the black. Anyway, those ended up being called Showa because they're, uh, named after Emperor Shoah. Same thing. The emperor had these fish presented to him and they were named after him. So those were the first three varieties of koi, which end up being like kind of the the traditional three. Now, I don't know how many varieties there are now, maybe probably over a hundred. Um, and they like the, the, the variety is amazing. And the, all sorts of names that have to do with uh, some of the history of how they were developed, some of the things that their patterns represent. Um, there are Utsuri, there are Beko. At some point, they were uh, crossed with scaleless German um, carp. And so there are actually scaleless koi that are called uh, Deutz, whatever. So if you cross a Kohaku with a scaleless German carp, then it becomes a Deutz Kohaku. Deutz being the uh, Japanese word for German. So anyway, totally off track. And we'll talk more koi later and hopefully maybe even get uh, some koi expert on the podcast at some point to, to really fill in some of the blanks that I left and probably correct some of the errors that I made. Um, but we, anyway, coming back to the basement, we may put a small indoor koi pond in the basement just for fun. Why not? It'd be fun to have a little pond and then we can have like some Anirondack chairs and relax and hang out with the water feature so we can pretend like a summertime. A little like tiki bar kind of thing tiki bar type of thing so we can hang out and pretend that it's summertime even when it's winter time okay we should talk about what kind of door we are going to install to get into the wine cellar so um i know courtney has some ideas and opinions about this so i will i will let her share so Imagine walking toward this door. Deeper and deeper, way down. That's a circle. <laughs> it sounds like you're hypnotizing me. <laughs> so, a hobbit door. 
everybody has seen Lord of the Rings. Wouldn't that be cool to have a hobbit door? You just kind of open up and walk into your wine cellar. That'd be that would be so cool. Cool, yes. It'd be keep, cool. Keep It'd in be... mind any of these ideas or things I have to build. But which is true. But I can still a girl can dream. I dreamed and this house appeared. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is that easy? <laughs> For me it was. <laughs> okay. Alright, it's not so, true. But round, round hobbit door. Apparently that's how we're gonna get into it. That'd um, be fun. Most important thing though, it's we not need to logical. Insulate the door. Practical perspective insulation. It'd be very difficult to actually create an insulated hobbit door. Thermodynamics stuff. Until it is mass, made. Temperature gradients. We can pretend. Okay. Um What are we doing tomorrow? Buying We're a buying tractor. a tractor. <laughs> and why do we need a tractor? <laughs> to make a hobbit door. No. <laughs> because winter is coming. Oh. So we need to make a koi pond so we can pretend like it's summertime? Is that what you're telling mm. me? No. <laughs> I thought that was where we were going. No? Okay. Mostly because we need to plow snow with the tractor. Yes. Now, there are a lot of other uses for a tractor. Some of you may wonder, well, why couldn't you just put a snow plow, like a plow blade, on your truck? That would be a lot easier than buying a tractor. Okay. Here's the thing. Let me explain the the theory of snow plowing. A plow blade on a truck can plow snow for the purpose of driving a car over that the truck would have been able to drive over anyway. If there's so much snow that the truck couldn't drive over it, the truck's not going to be able to drive over it with a plow blade in front, right? True. So if we have trucks, there's no point in putting a plow blade on the front of them. Because if we need to plow the snow and the plow blade would work, we could just drive over it with the truck. So there were a couple times last year we almost didn't make it to the plowed roads. Canada, huh? (laughs) Almost made it. Super Troopers quote right there. No, but we almost didn't make it to the plowed roads because the snow was so deep. We actually had to have our neighbors come and dig us out with a bobcat once. One time. It still happened. Yes. You just had to gun it and hope for the best all the other times. (laughs) (laughs) It's a responsible way to do it. With a tractor, the tractor would be able to drive through snow that your truck never could. Because the tractor has ridiculously large tires, huge amount of torque, just generally better at driving through snow. So we put a blade or a bucket on the tractor. Mostly it's a adult responsibility issue. And 
if you're going to choose to live somewhere where you're actually several miles from the nearest county road. About six. That gets plowed. Eventually. Um, uh, time. Sometimes yeah. it takes several days before they actually plow the county road, if they plow it at all. That has happened. So, um, nothing against our county. They do a great job. But choosing to live in a place where you're a little more remote, you have to be responsible, buy a new toy, tra- buy a new tractor. Right? I do have to get to work right? most exactly. days of the week. Kids have to get to school. Because in Wyoming, we generally don't do snow days. It's just not a thing here most of the time. So I say most days of the week, I need to get to work. Every day that I'm scheduled, I need to be at work. But I also work weekends, so I end up working many days. I feel like I should have phrased that differently. Right. More entertaining. So, tractor. And we get to do all sorts of other fun stuff with it, too. We get to use it. We can now grade our own driveway. We could grade our whole road. For 20 bucks, I'll call the guy. Never mind. Um, Anyway, so... We get to do all sorts of grading. Um, <laughs> also, with all of the landscaping jobs that we have to do around the around the property, um, we say landscaping. It's a little more than just like smoothing out a lawn. Like we need to put in several retaining walls around the house. Yes. Um, excuse me. <coughs> um. Um, any pond digging that we do. Um, also, we are getting an auger with the tractor that runs off the tractor's PTO. For those non-engineering, more professional types who think that PTO stands for paid time off. That's what I thought. PTO stands for power take off. It's a mechanical device that runs off of the engine of a tractor or any engine. Paid time off is a lot more fun. Basically, you get money. You, you have and a you PTO don't have to go to on work. your kitchen mixer blender thing. Your KitchenAid mixer. KitchenAid mixer. You have you have a PTO on the front of your KitchenAid mixer, which we use all the time for True. the meat grinder and True. the spiralizer and other implements. So, just like your kitchen mixer. You can get implements for a tractor that run off of the PTO, power takeoff. They're just a little bit more expensive. Not much. Just just a little. Okay, there are tractor implements that cost less than your KitchenAid. I'm not talking about the KitchenAid <laughs> itself. I'm talking about the KitchenAid implements. Right. Anyway, we're getting an auger. So... All of the talking we've been doing about planting trees and such around the property. And fruit trees. Exciting. Habitat improvement. That too. Um, we will now have an auger on a tractor that we can use to um, dig the holes to plant the trees. Um, so an auger is a... Really big drill bit for those of you who don't know what an auger is. It's kind of what it looks like. And we're going to get one that you can dig into the ground and it kind of digs up all the dirt no matter how hard or compact the dirt is. So you have a hole that you can 
plant a tree in. But you can also have a hole to put different soil in. Our soil is very alkaline, so that means it has a lot of um, basic salts in it. And a lot of, I'm going to talk about fruit trees because I'm super excited about those. So a lot of those fruit trees need to have more acidic soil. So you put soil compost in that and you put the tree in and you kind of fill in around that and you're able to change the soil just in that area where the where the fruit tree or any tree you choose to to plant actually goes into the ground there and the roots will grow out in that in that area that has different soil in the soil around um like the natural soil around it so she talked about how compost is generally acidic. Like compost richer, is richer soil is acidic. When you're talking about acidic versus alkaline soil, acidic versus alkaline soil. <laughs> In general, what you would think of as being richer soil or more compost rich soil or straight compost is going to be acidic. So when we say that we have alkaline soil, it basically doesn't have the nutrients that you need for growing fruit trees and stuff like that. Yes. When you think of that rich black dirt that you run your hands through and it's just pitch black, that's most likely, no, that's going to be acidic soil. Like in Ohio. Go Buckeyes. That is not fair. You're ridiculous. Go Michigan State. Come on. Come on. Go Michigan. (laughs) Okay. We should get back to your fruit trees. So tell me about your fruit trees. I really like fruit trees. So I grew up in Michigan, a fantastic place to grow up. And I have these incredibly wonderful memories. You're starting to irritate me. Please stop saying go Buckeyes. Go State. Michigan State. To be specific. Next. So I have these fantastic memories about growing up in Michigan and we would always make this homemade applesauce. But to make this homemade applesauce, we would have to go to apple orchards and we would have to go and harvest apples from the trees, pick all the apples and get seven, eight bushels of apples and make between, gosh, it depended on the year, but up to a hundred quarts of applesauce. So I have these fantastic childhood memories, teenage memories of making applesauce from fruit trees. I am so excited to be able to have fruit trees. I'm going to be realistic. It takes years for fruit trees to actually produce fruit. So I am sure my kids aren't really going to be able to experience fruit trees for years to come, but even then it's still going to be a great experience. So now when you think of fruit trees, obviously the acidic soil, that thick black soil that just kind of runs through your hands and just feels so fresh. Anyway, so this this soil, we're going to need to 
help amend our soil so that it gets more acidic, it gets more nutrients in it, so we're able to grow different things than what grow here right now. So the USDA has these zones. You may have gone to um, a nursery of some sort, a tree nursery, a, a flower nursery, and gone there and looked at... <laughs> A shrubbery nursery and taking a look at the the cards for different plants and they tell you what zone you're in so the usda has these different zones you have like the tropic subtropic like zone seven where literally anything will grow even poinsettias will grow round year round um so on the USDA map, they kind of map out the, the um, entirety of the United States and say what zone you are and what things should grow in your zone. So based on the USDA map, we're zone five, which is really not that bad. If you look at our actual temperatures, we're, we're zone like two, maybe three. Yes, if you're wondering... Um, we do live in Siberia. The lower right, me, the number... Let me jump in there and just mention on that map. Usually the USDA zone map is a map of the entire United States. So, and and often it's printed on a little card that's like the size of a business card that's attached <laughs> as a tag to the plant. And so, so you have the entire United States, which is however many thousand miles wide. And it takes up like... All of like two inches By two. on this tag. By right? an inch and a half, yeah. So so trying to decipher like, ooh, I live here in this little color-coded map. Just keep in mind when you're deciding what zone you live in, go off of your actual recorded average high and low temperatures, not the not the little guideline map. Now for some of you, that'll be fine. Like if you live in Corpus Christi, Texas, you are solidly in zone whatever, like eight or nine that it shows on the map. If you live in Miami, you are solidly in whatever zone that is. Like zone 15. I don't even know. <laughs> the zones don't actually go up that high. If you live in the Rocky Mountain West, there can be a huge difference in your zone based on your altitude. Like we we can drive a hundred miles from here and drop what like three four thousand feet in yes. elevation. Yes. Or or more. Um. So like a relatively negligible distance on that tiny little printed map that shows you your zone could be a difference of like a mile in elevation, which makes a huge difference in how cold it gets in the winter and the length of your growing season. So that said, that's why in reality, we need to plan as though we're growing in like somewhere between zone two and three, even though in the map, it may look like we're probably on the edge of zone five. So go ahead. So with that being said, zone like eight is like Miami. Antarctica is zone like one. We live in zone two or we three. Two. <laughs> we we chose to live here. All right. 
So moving was it on. Like just a few years ago, like was it like five years ago? There was actually a, a one night or two or three nights in the winter when Laramie, Wyoming, was not the coldest place on Earth because you still have like the Arctic, but it was actually the coldest city on Earth was here. I think that was in 2010. So that was a while ago. Anyway, we live in a place that at one point in the winter, not that long ago, was actually the coldest city on earth. You're making people want to move to Laramie and flock here. I don't want them to flock here. I I like my wide open spaces. With that being said, those three nights in a row made a significant difference in the... Mm. The tree beetle popula- the population. Beetle kill. Yes, the which yeah. we've talked about before on the podcast is the uh, the beetle infestation. That particular cold snap that we had of our evergreen trees, the mm-hmm. pine trees, actually actually killed a lot of the beetles and really kind of put a hard stop to a lot of that infestation. Well, it was negative sixty five in the mountains for three days straight. Right. Yeah, it was actually that cold. It was. We had just moved here from Houston, Texas. I wore my kilt. You... <laughs> was that the was that where that picture was where you were wearing Probably. the fox the the fox fur hat from that we got in uh, when we were in Moscow and your kilt? Nice. Okay, we're getting way off topic. I'm trying to talk about fruit trees. Speaking of fruit trees. <laughs> so speaking of fruit trees. USDA zone three, what can we grow here? Well, we can actually grow pears and apples and cherries and apricots. Um, So, pears. As long as you get the right variety. That is true, because not all of these specific kinds of trees will grow in our cooler climate. I'm not going to say cold. We just live in a cooler climate. By the way, speaking of like chasing people away from where we live because it's so cold. I have a theory that like every single place has like its thing that makes people not want to live there. It's drawbacks. Yeah, absolutely. And in the absence of any other drawback, here's to you, San Diego cost of living. So, um, yeah, here it's the cold and wind. San Diego, where everything is perfect. Lived there for a while. Loved it. Um, Cost of living is what keeps everyone from living there. Then in Houston, gosh, it got really hot. You could do nothing There are a lot of things that would keep everyone from living in Houston. Sorry, Houston. I know we have some Houston listeners. Love you. (laughs) Overall, the people in Houston were some of the most amazing people I've ever met. All right. Moving on. So, pears and apples and cherries. So, with our pears, I mean, obviously, you can eat them fresh. So delicious. You can make pear cider. Um, Cherries, you can have, well, obviously, cherries. They draw a whole bunch of birds, too. So, you have this cherry tree with all these small little tiny fruits, and you can draw so many birds to your yard, and you can just enjoy them just 
making noise and causing a ruckus and just enjoying their chirping and just their jolliness. Next, we have apricots, which Isaac wanted me to specifically note that those were his favorites. So, of course, they are important, um, which they are. Next, apples. I personally personally, excuse me, love apples. Um, obviously making that applesauce that I grew up with, but you can also make apple cider, apple pies. And one of our, our middle daughter, one of her favorite snacks is dried apples. We'll take apples and we'll cut them up and we'll put them in our food dehydrator and they keep for quite a while. And she loves snacking on those as well. So all those trees we want to put in our garden area. So we are going to have, obviously, normal stuff in a garden, zucchini and cucumbers and carrots and kale and all of that yummy vegetableness. Kohlrabi. And in addition, we're going to have these rows of fruit trees. We may even, while we're planning on even, having some of um, having a vineyard so we can eventually have this vineyard harvest our grapes, make wine, and then store this wine in our wine cellar. And all of you will be along for the ride on the entire process. Exciting. Building the garden, planting the vineyard, planting the orchard, waiting a couple years while the uh, vines and trees mature to producing age, harvesting grapes, making our own wine from our own grapes right here and storing it in our wine cellar. So how's that for bringing it full circle back to the wine cellar? Anyway, folks, um, that's about all we have for talking about the wine cellar. So we have... We're going to try this. We have our website, which is masterofnonepodcast.com. Right. And if you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes. Or um, pictures of your beautiful pantry with all of your canned goods. That too. Or, or opinions on our disagreements, um, marital disputes. Yes, please email your opinions on our marital disputes to contact at masterofnonepodcast.com. <laughs> also, if you want to stay up to date on what I'm doing right now, she's shaking her head. I don't I don't know your at symbol for Instagram. I don't do that sort of thing. I'll, I'll say the at symbol part. You just okay. have to get my name. So oh. I am at Isaac.r.gordon. You, you did know it. I thought you were joking. Apparently I did know it. <laughs> I've listened to every single one of your podcasts. So oh, apparently it rubs in. You're so sweet. Oh. So can you spell it for <laughs> that didn't <laughs> I know <laughs> I know you can spell it. Can you, would you please spell it out for new listeners? At symbol I-S-A-A-C dot R dot G-O-R-D-O-N. 
There we go. Also, fun Facebook group. This is not a group to share politics or any of that sort of opinion. So if you're tired of that on Facebook, get away from it with a vacation to the Master of None podcast Facebook group. It's a place where we can all get together and share pictures of our projects, ideas for projects, questions about projects, maybe get some inspiration or advice. Including pictures of beautiful pantries. Right. So if you've done your own pantry or wine cellar, um, go ahead and post some pictures on there. Also, I will let Courtney plug our Master of None. What's it called? The the website that moms go on to look at pictures. You're talking about Pinterest? Yes. <laughs> that plug that moms one. Moms go on. I don't know what your thing is. I have a Pinterest page. Courtney manages it and mm-hmm. right apparently it's really successful right now. <laughs> so I will get you the information on that at some point. Maybe maybe don't go on there. That's my recommendation <laughs> right now. Don't go on my Pinterest at whatever it is that I don't actually even know. So I think that's it. I think that's all of our good plugs for for all of our, what are they called, platforms. Yep. All right. Um, So we will catch back up with you next time with whatever our next episode is. Until then, have a great day. Bye. Theme music for the Master of None podcast is Club Seamus by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org. If you need some of your own original music, go check out Kevin's other work at his website, Incompetech.com. <laughs>